Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. So 29 at the department. This is our fifth in our flashback series into the 2000s. We just keep going. I mean, there's so much to uncover. Um, And so this one's going to be another deeper dive into everyone's favorite counterculture, the hipsters. Um, You know, we've got a ton of messages and we hear your love for reminiscing on the 2000s, particularly the hipsters, loud and clear. It has been super mind-blowing for us to look back on a period that just really has not been hindsighted that much and has so much to uncover um, and really how it kind of reflects back on our today as well. Um, And so as promised, we're going to go into the even seedier underbelly. Amanda will be talking about misogyny (laughs) and a lot of elements in there. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about some scammers um i'll I'll be breaking that up over a couple episodes because that's a lot um (laughs) and i did want to throw out a trigger warning um you know a mr christensen warning we like to call it Um, (laughs) yes yes not recommended (laughs) yeah there's a lot of content in this episode that i do not feel is appropriate for mr christensen (laughs) or sensitive ears or sensitive ears maybe this is a great time to start a new puzzle you know, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe there's some snow to shovel. Sports to watch. A mystery book to read. <laughs> Mr. Christensen, you have so many other things to do. You might want to skip this whole episode, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the whole thing. Yeah, not, it's pretty, not. it's pretty racy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if you have anything you want to contribute particularly to the 2000s and the hipsters, please, you know, leave us a message at our hotline. Uh, it's We share it with our sister podcast, Close Horse, Amanda's podcast. And that number is 717-925-7417. Um, you can also email us a story, trend or truth uh, at our email, which is info at the department.world. And we can just read it for you as well. And we have another option, which we've been using over at Clothes Horse. Um, This is great if you actually have a lot to say and you don't want to be cut off by the voicemail. You can record a message using the voice memo on your phone if you have an iPhone. I think that Androids have something similar or you could even record yourself using your computer and then you can email it to me. And uh, I spoke to... Our AV crew here at the department slash clothes horse, which is <laughs> Dustin Travis White, who does uh-huh. all of our audio support and our music. And he actually told me that the microphone in the iPhone is particularly good. And he actually went on to play music for me that he had recorded using his phone and it sounded amazing. So the sound quality is really good as long as you put your mouth near your phone. I know that's hard for some people, 
including myself. So you might want to listen back to it before you email it off to us. Great. Um, Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at underscore the underscore department. You know, we have a, this, this growing little community on there. Um, So we'd love for you to join. And we also have a great website to reference the department.world for all show notes and images. Um, and if you like what you're hearing, we, and, and you have the, the Apple podcast app, um, you know, give us a star rating and review. It really helps us be more visible for people who haven't found us yet. Um, yeah. So Amanda, I feel like we might have some hotline messages to start with. We do, you know, I just wanted to say, I get so excited every time one of you calls and side note, I am really loving all the hipster photos you've been sharing this week. So please keep them coming. I was really excited to see my friend Alana, who definitely was my sidekick during the earliest part of the hipster aughts in Portland. She shared some pictures this week that like, I remember those events so clearly and all the weird dudes that we were hanging out with. Precious? Yes. Precious. Delightful guy. Uh, Lots of. I, you know, I don't think we all knew how dirty everyone's hair was back then. That's one of my takeaways from the photos I've seen so far. I don't know if we were all using weird product. Maybe the product technology wasn't so so. good back then, but everybody's hair. Well, this was before dry dry shampoo didn't exist. Can you imagine how did we live? I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't know either. And now it's like a normal part of my stable, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, anyway, so we have some messages. Um, our first one here is from Anne and I have to say, Anne actually called a while ago, like in January, but the close horse hotline must've been ringing off the hook that week. So I missed it, but it's just as relevant as ever. It's about the odds. Uh, and it made me think about so many things. So let's give it a listen. Hey, Amanda and Kim. Um, this is your listener, Anne, uh, calling the department uh, just because I just listened to your latest episode. I wanted to call and confirm that, yes, the 2000s was a terrible time to be a teenage girl. Um, I started middle school, like, in the year 2000, so it was just, like, the height of all that. Um, and, like, that silhouette of that high-waisted top with the low-rise jean were, like, a flat stomach was part of the accessory. It, it was just a terrible thing when you're like going through puberty and your body's changing and like gaining weight and all that. Um, I'm so glad you're doing episodes about the 2000s. I, I loathe slow rise jeans. I hope they don't come back. I agree that if we work together, we can stop it from happening. Um, and yeah, I guess I, what did I like about the 2000s? You know what was fun? Remember when blazers with the floral cloth pin, like that giant floral cloth pin? It was so silly. And I'll know the 2000s are really back when those come back. I love your podcast so much, both of them. Thank you. Bye. So, I mean, I have so many thoughts here. Uh, Uh I do believe that if we all stick together, we can keep low-rise jeans from coming back. I think so. (laughs) But I feel like everyone knows it's just more flattering to wear something right. higher waisted. I think so too. We know that now because like jeans did not look good. Okay. And dudes were wearing low rise jeans too. Uh, frequently mm-hmm. women's low rise jeans because they were slimmer fit. And this is so gross. I, you know, ugh, you know Portland, very bike driven culture, especially 
in the early aughts. And, you know, these dudes would be riding their bikes around in their Uh low-rise women's jeans. And they were never wearing underwear. And you would just see some (laughs) gross, sweaty, hairy, possibly pimply butt right in front of you on your bike. And you have, like, no choice but to stare at it because it's, like, in the bike lane right in front of you. And we need to protect future generations from this. Right, I, you're totally right. I mean, there was also not very many options. It was like every single denim company just did oh. low rise, and like high rise was just not an option. I remember when mid rise became something in like the mid part of the aughts, and I was like, oh my god, where has this been? I know, you know, I know. It was like, look, my underwear aren't hanging out, my butt crack warm mm-hmm. in case. Yes, yeah, no, I, yes. I know. I mean, how many times would I be sitting somewhere and someone? like on like the stairs to someone's apartment or like on a stoop, whatever. And someone would be like, I can see your butt crack. And you'd be like, yeah, no shit. I can see everyone's butt crack <laughs> like, right here. I don't here. have any other options. Yeah, it's this or no pants. What do you exactly. want? <laughs> even even the leggings were low rise. They were Everything oh, was low rise. Even the <laughs> tights were low yes. rise. <gasps> oh my God. And they'd be so tight and it would squeeze everything into weird oh, positions. Got Guys, nothing. It was, nothing sat right. It was terrible. We've made so much progress mm-hmm. when it comes well, to did rise. You, <laughs> did you watch the Britney Spears documentary? Because I got a lot of people asking, um, DMing on the Instagram if I've watched the or if we've watched the Britney Spears documentary, which I did this weekend. So I haven't, only because I have been really in the weeds with launching the Close First mm. blog. But I. A few months ago, I listened to a really amazing series of episodes about Britney Spears of various different podcasts. I just went down a rabbit hole where I was obsessed with Britney Spears. So I listened to a couple episodes of You're Wrong About, which is one of my Mm -hmm. favorite podcasts. Um, I listened to another one called What Really Happened that really went into her breakdown and the time leading up to it. I've been reading a ton of stuff about her conservatorship, and I've always been really upset about it. When I think about how terrible the early aughts were to young women in particular, Brittany is the first person I see, like right yes. in front of me. Yes. <sighs> and, you know, and, and Brittany was obviously the icon and it was the kind of the role ma- model for a lot of, you know, people that were, or young girls that were in middle school during that time period, you know? And so that over-sexualization of young oh, girls yeah. obviously was perpetuated by Brittany um, but Brittany was older and, you know, so it wasn't, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of mothers, you know, banned Brittany because she was a bad influence. Um, but what other options, you know, were there, you know, everybody just loved Brittany and, you know, honestly, her music was, was pretty good. And then Justin's was awesome. Yeah. I love Justin's first album. Um, but you know, that look was what she wore and it was just as low as you could go mm. without showing pubic hair yeah yeah <laughs> and, no, then, and then terrible. as high up and flat belly i mean you can't get that body unless you are literally going to a trainer and and just eating you know your macros like that is an unattainable body oh, yeah. which i'm sure i just sure. caused massive amounts of eating disorders oh for sure uh there's also a couple episodes of you're wrong about where they read and discuss Jessica Simpson's recent biography. And I can't recommend that enough either because the parallels are so strong. 
Um, and it's the same thing with just the super low rise pants and having mm-hmm. to be really thin and just the yeah. pressure to be sexy, but not too sexy. And, you know, it's just right. Because then, because then you'll be labeled a slut, right? You know, right. it's like, what is, what is the fine line? You know, what, what no what one knows. Want? No one knows. That's exactly. the problem. That's the problem. Um, I also just wanted mm-hmm. to touch on the flower pins on the blazer. Um, mm-hmm. not going to lie, made my own flower pins out of felt. Uh, I felt like at my job at urban outfitters, when I was working in the store, no one from like, you know, like the district manager level really noticed me until one time they came and I had one of those, these huge flowers that I'd made myself out of felt in my hair. And suddenly I was like fast tracked to a promotion. So, uh, Oh my God, that like made you, you probably wouldn't even be sitting here today without that flower. I mean, it it goes to show that you were a trend hunter Mm -hmm. from an early age and how trends can actually affect, affect your, um, professional, I don't know, promotions and capabilities. No, totally. It's, I mean, and you know, working in our industry, you have to be ahead Mm -hmm. of the trends, you know, if you want to succeed, you know, I mean, there's plenty of other things that you need to be able to do. And some of them are dodgier than others, but the trend thing is really Mm -hmm. important. (laughs) Okay. Well, we have another message and it's from Meredith. And if you recall from the last episode, we went off on a tangent about lucky and how, In our experience in LA, so many people would leave there and go back. And we asked, why is that? And I totally had forgotten that Meredith worked at Lucky at a certain point. So I don't know if her message is going to clarify things because I think even she is like, yeah, I don't know what the deal is, but let's listen to it anyway. That's such a treat. Such a treat. Okay. Hey, Kim and Amanda. Um, This is Meredith. I'm a recovering hipster. I'm also driving home, so I hope this makes sense, but I've been listening to your podcast all day, and I want to make a comment first on the Lucky Brand thing. Um, I have no idea why so many people worked for Lucky Brand, left, and then went back. Um, I worked for Lucky Brand in the early 80s for a couple of years, and I know so many people that either remained there or worked there for a while, left, and went back. I think once Gene and Barry, the founders, were out of the picture, it just became, like, this terrible place to work, and anyone who I worked with who worked under Gene and Barry would just go on and on regaling me with stories of how awesome it was and how many parties they had. And it, then it really did seem like a fun place to work. But honestly, the only perk was our really, really nice, brand new pristine office building in um, the arts district. It had windows everywhere, which in the fashion industry can be hard to find at times. Um, I also wanted to comment on the fact that the emo kids were cursor, you know, kind of to the, the modern day hipster. Uh, we were all about um, coffee shop culture. You always knew someone who was selling the communist paper. It was all like just trying to be like so alternative, but yet also everyone looked the same. You dressed the same. You listened to the same music. It was all kind of a sham, but funny now looking back on it. And finally, the best hipster bar in Los Angeles, may it rest in peace, was Bar 107, downtown, amazing, had gong show karaoke. I miss that place. It was 
just the best. So I hope you guys are doing well. I love everything and talk to you soon. Bye. What a lovely message. I love this message and there's so many great little elements about it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what she was talking about with Lucky is super reflective of Nasty Gal. Where Oh Kim, I was thinking the same exact thing. Oh my God. Yeah, where it's like everyone keeps talking about how great it was. How many cupcakes? I mean cupcake parties they used to have. (laughs) Cupcakes do not make a job good. No. Kim, I don't understand why that everybody who ever wanted to tell us how Nasty Gal used to be better would always yeah. cite these fucking cupcake parties. I know. <laughs> like, because I would be like, huh, that's weird. Because like about a year before we joined the company, maybe a little bit less, there were all these exposés already going across the internet on like Jezebel and stuff about what a terrible place it was to work and how people were being fired for being pregnant and whatnot. So, but the office, the office was beautiful. It was. And I do remember this specific thing that would happen when, when if something bad happened, if there was like some sort of mor- they needed a morale booster, they would bring out that that popcorn machine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and the guys who were the receptionists uh-huh. would bring around popcorn, and the popcorn was like pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, that was all we really had. And I, I do remember that when we both got laid off. Like I was, it was informed that the popcorn machine came out. <laughs> Stop! Oh yes. my god! They, had, they brought out the popcorn machine that day. I mean, doesn't that make you feel special? Although, to be fair, that day was like a bloodbath. Like I remember sitting at my desk and hearing people sobbing, and I was like working on stuff for Open to Buy, and I was like, "What's going on?" And then someone was like, "Everyone's getting laid off." And I was like, oh, well, whatever. And then, of course, I got yeah, it off, exactly. but whatever. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could not be more overjoyed. Oh, I remember being taken into the office and giving this, like, you have done so much for the company and we're going to miss you. And I was like, it's fine. Can I just get my envelope of information? Me, me too. I'm like, you're taking this so well. Yeah. And like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, trust me, trust me. about this. And you're like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, uh, well, Kim and I have plans. My boyfriend's picking us up. So can we just like move this along? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, Um. uh, well, (laughs) thank you so much for calling Anne and Meredith. Like keep the calls coming. We love them. Almost as much as we love a popcorn machine. All right. Well, anyway, so um, we are going to be talking a little bit more about the seedy underbelly of the 2000s hipster situation um i'm gonna start with some some scamsters there was a trend of various versions of scams and cons (laughs) that happened in the aughts (laughs) you know what i was thinking of the other day i i was just like unloading the dishwasher and i remembered how there were these scams it was like it would go right to your your spam folder right on your gmail or whatever but People would still fall for it. We'd be like, I'm a Nigerian prince oh, yes. and like I have, yes. I need you to do something. I don't know. There was, there were a lot. It was a scammy time. Because that was like, that was like a tech based one. Yeah. That was when email, when people were getting more email and people were able to be manipulated. They're like, oh, well, if it's coming into my, my, my inbox or, oh, if it's on the internet, it must be true. As if a Nigerian prince would just randomly Pick an email out of the blue to be like, listen, AOL account. Listen, I bought a few million dollars. I need your help to secure. Like, no, that's not happening. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) 
We're just a little less informed back then. Yeah, yeah, we didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a time period ripe for manipulation, especially amongst the hipsters, as they just valued authenticity, and you kind of trusted the hipsters to be authentic, you know, because that was that was the name of the game. So the scams were generally all revolving around how they it was a claim that they were authentic, but really they were inauthentic, and that was the scam. <laughs> um, so I have a few, a few scam stories lined up over the next few episodes. Um, but today I'm going to cover the most notorious one and the one that actually it just required the most amount of reading and, um, is just a long, a long one. And this one is the hipster grifter. Wow. Which what a time to be alive. I didn't know that much about because I just kind of was, it was like an eye rolling, like, oh, how disgusting. <laughs> oh, like yeah. shudder to think. <laughs> Kim, I was so into this because Gawker, as we discussed, I'm sure yes. Gawker's going to come up like 1,000 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were obsessed with it. And I yeah. was a religious reader of Gawker. I'm so sad that it's gone. And I have just this visceral memory of sitting at my desk at Urban Outfitters home office, I can picture exactly where I was sitting then and who sat around me and what it felt like to read a story <laughs> about the hipster grifter almost every day. Yes. At that I will test. get into it. Yeah. I will get into it and you'll be like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's what happened. Because it, I did have, I went through and there was so many articles. Oh, uh, it went on forever. It went on for a while. But the, the coolest part was that you were there in the moment as she was literally running from the law and people were just submitting their stories left and right. And it turns out she really affected a lot of people and she pissed off a lot of hipsters <laughs> and they were, uh, they were not going to save any face. They were going to just drag her name through the mud. Anyway, so Carrie Farrell, is it Farrell or Farrell, you think? I don't know. No one ever pronounced her name. I never heard it read out loud. Uh, yes. And I just realized I don't really know how to pronounce it. But anyway, we'll probably be calling her just Carrie or the hipster grifter. Was and likely still is a criminal con artist, swindler, general nuisance, and a female sexual predator, which you don't always hear about that much. But during this time period, you know, I'm actually surprised there wasn't more of this. Um, I definitely knew some some female sexual predator hipsters uh, during this time period. Um, but this one is definitely the most notorious uh, that I didn't actually know. So she was dressed in full hipster regalia and she sullied the hipster name in the aughts. <laughs> when it already had a really negative consideration because this is the later aughts. So the general public, you know, um, had already kind of considered the hipster kind of uh, the gross, a gross counterculture. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why the press went so wild, particularly Gawker, who couldn't have been more delighted with the story and its many memes. So any reason to mock or demonize the hipster culture was particularly interesting to so many. And granted, <laughs> we made it really, really easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we would, I mean, we've talked about this before. There would be a lot of denial that you were hipsters. So even hipsters mm-hmm. would insult other hipsters by calling them hipsters. But in fact, 
it was like the classic pot kettle situation. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make it's like, any it's sense. It's like, the, what are you? Like, I know, I know. I hate, I hate it. What a weird time. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, I learned about the hipster grifter because someone who was scammed or one of their friends had posted a flyer around Williamsburg, where I lived, warning people to stay away from this person. Um, and it could have been the time period when she was actually on the lam and they were looking for people to report seeing her. Um, so this was like before next door, we had flyers. Um, the flyer had been copied multiple times. So it was kind of hard to read, but mentioned some details in a very long paragraph that included some of the famous sexual quotes that I will get into. Uh, honestly, I actually kind of thought it was a, you know, a Williamsburg hipster art or performance piece or something. I didn't realize that it was this, you know, this, this, this reckoning. Um, and I was shocked to read about it later and go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Like now, now I kind of understand what that flyer was about. <laughs> so long story short, this woman, woman named Carrie shows up at the Vice office in Williamsburg. Uh, of course, Vice is in this story. Vice uh-huh. is definitely in this story. Uh, I believe this is 2009. Um, and she was considered basically, quote unquote, the perfect hipster, applying with a bogus and fabricated resume, kind of like don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, and getting an admin assistant position. She had a pixie cut elaborate chest tattoo of a phoenix and a tattoo that said i heart beards on her back skinny jeans encyclopedia uh indie knowledge taste uh and a filthy mouth right in line with ranch culture Uh, she was also a really cute asian chick too which was like very trendy Mm -hmm, at the time also mm -hmm. in kind of a very weird way so it was the whole kit and caboodle. She was the dream, or so they thought. Because uh, as I mentioned, she forged all of the impressive music promotion jobs on her resume. So almost immediately, in the span of literally a day, she starts making some trouble for, him, for herself at the vice office. She proceeds to sexually harass one of her male co-workers, accelerating just a casual meeting conversation to some serious inappropriate IM messages asking about her his whole sexual history and admittedly he can he claims his interest was peaked of course it was yeah that was kind of the thing but there were a few red flags so he just googled her and found out that she was wanted in utah and not just wanted but she was in fact on salt lake city police department's most wanted list Wanted on five different warrants, including passing $60,000 in bad checks, <gasps> forgery, and retail theft. Whoa! Yeah. This girl was no good. Yeah. So Vice releases an article after the story breaks to the public, which I think that they leaked to the Observer. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure about the details there, and but I'll get to it in a little bit. Um, and it's, and their their article was called "The Department of Oopsies." We hired a grifter, noting that while she was in Utah, she also faked numerous abortions and was run out of town after earning a colorful nickname called, and I quote, "The Filth." <laughs> the Filth. I mean, <laughs> that is just, but you, once I start explaining a little bit more about here, I mean, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible name, but once I start getting into it, you're kind of like, 
Yeah. Okay. I also just, uh, I hate, like, one of the sexist tropes that's out there is this idea of faking abortions and, Mm -hmm. like, for financial gain, I guess. And, I mean, I can think of numerous songs that cite this and uh, it makes me so mad when it really happens. You know, you know what I mean? It gets worse than fake abortions. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Yeah. So she tried to get her friends to cash her checks, her friends, her close friends to cash checks. And she was trying to convince them that there, that she was a victim of identity theft and she had her bank account frozen so she could cash these checks for her so that they would cash these checks for her, which is just, you know, what a great friend. I mean, there's like just a ton of stories behind all of this and she was up to just absolute no good so about a year before getting a job at vice she flees from utah to new york and unknowingly is unleashed onto the hipster community obviously this girl is trouble and has a history of conning people she is clearly really skilled and has exhausted her utah community as well as being wanted by the law so why not go to a larger city and just get lost Mm-hmm. So when she gets to New York, almost immediately, she was able to manipulate her way into a few circles of friends and a few men's beds. I mean, it's really easy to meet people in New York. You just go to the hipster bar and strike up conversation. So they interviewed um, a few guys. This is in that Observer article. Um, they interviewed these guys. And she had led a lot of them on, never having money, always needing to borrow money, needing to crash on people's couches. She claimed her parents were abusive and Mm -hmm. sometimes fabricated a story that she came to Brooklyn to flee from an abusive boyfriend. She had all these pregnancy scares. Um, And one of the worst things and one of the most used things that she said was that she horrifically claimed that she had lung cancer. (gasps) I remember that. Who does that? And had only three months to live. Someone who really has some sort of... Some issues. I mean, she has problems. We're for sure. Yeah. We're saying that already. Mm-hmm. She's been through some shit, clearly, you know. Yeah. So she would even stage situations where she would cough up what looked to be blood in her hands. <gasps> and what? Yeah. She would even she dragged one of these guys to a hospital, you know, and they couldn't even find her information. She's like staging these elaborate ruses constantly. Wow. And, and she was like always saying that she was in the hospital or going into the hospital or getting like an operation constantly, um, which wasn't even true. And I mean, it's just one of those classic bullshitting for empathy. Oh, like, wow. Mixed with mental illness. Yeah. And usually what happened was that these guys would fall for the hoax for a period of time and something would then just kind of, you know, clue them. There would be like a, a flag and then they would Google her and she's just right there <laughs> and they would reveal that you know that she was wanted and that this that she was a scam artist and they would basically just cancel her from their friend group and she would just tr- jump to the next and the next and the next Jeez. everyone falling for this ploy and the lure all these men interviewed said was that she was attractive warm and very very sexually aggressive uh which was part of the manipulation she knew mm-hmm. all these strange tricks to exploit everyone to get what she wanted. Money, attention, whatever it was, using any anything. She would make up every single lie. Everything that she would come out of her mouth was an, an elaborate lie. 
And she would have these extremely long conversations with these people, get to know them, having, you know, talking to them about all these things that just didn't exist, like having this job at Golden Voice that put on all these cool festivals and shows. Mm-hmm. And it was all fabrications. And that's one of the things that just shocked people the most. It's like, I thought I actually knew this person. And it was all a lie. Like we'd have hour long conversations and she would just make everything up. So one of her classic moves at the bars was to have bartenders pass little notes to guys with really foul sexual innuendos. And some of the most classic quotes, and she reused them. Yeah. She knew which one worked. That's the most classic quotes that surrounded the hipster grifter come from these notes. So, and I quote, I want to give you a hand job with my mouth. Signed Korean Abdul Jabbar. I mean, Kim, this is just disgusting. So well, disgusting, but that sort of humor, if you will, irony is just, of course, if you just showed me a picture of this note, I would be like, "Mm, 2004. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it fits. Oh, yeah. Anyway, gross. Um, (laughs) uh, Yep. And at a different bar and a different guy, she sent the note. And I quote, I want, I want you to throw a hot dog down my hall. <laughs> this, okay. You were asking me about <laughs> the hipster grifter. And this was the thing that I remembered the most. I still don't know if I like it or think it's I, good. It's so <laughs> gross. It's so gross. So well, gross. she would, it was obviously a sexual innuendo, but there were a couple guys that talked about how they would actually go to her apartment, pick up hot dogs in toss them in a hallway because they thought they were being cute and clever uh-huh. oh god you know oscar meyer should be suing her did that go to court I- because it should <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and i do want to take a moment and reveal that hipsters commodified this woman and her quotes to this day you can still buy a hipster grifter um t-shirt or other crap good lord stop (laughs) yes that use these quotes or her i heart beards tattoo which became really famous i mean that is like what an embarrassment (laughs) i just hate this so much and i do wonder was she really a hipster or was she was this a persona she was adopting? Because who- it was a persona. Right. She was clearly like a shapeshifter. Because who would get a I heart beards tattoo except for someone who was trying to be the ultimate hipster? You know? Yeah. Well, she she knew what to do to to con people, and she knew how to she knew the 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 right people to go. I mean, I think she ultimately liked that counterculture because she knows knew so much about music and everything. That's a really hard call if she was a real hipster. I know. I know. I I don't know the answer. I would love to hear what everybody else thinks. Probably not because she wasn't authentic. Right. You know? Right. Which actually, this might be one of the the most um, insulting things is to say that she wasn't a hipster because she was was not authentic. Yeah. It was just like a put on. Mm Mm-hmm. So the observer broke the story and it wasn't just a little nudge. It was an insane feeding frenzy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> three days after the article dropped it generated over and this was this was before this was when like these viral things were just starting to kind of be popular uh-huh. um so this is over a quarter million page views 
and well over a thousand comments. Uh, and she basically became a fugitive for a few weeks, which fueled the fire even more. Oh my goodness. So Gawker was the place to go for hipster grifter news. <laughs> <laughs> there were for sure quite a few writers covering the topic, mostly men actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hamilton Nolan uh, is or was the writer that was working on these grifter articles at at the time period and had a, had a really clear obsession in a really great way with hipster grifter. And most of the articles came from him. Mm -hmm. um, and he followed the story so closely. And I have a feeling he probably also lived in like Williamsburg, you know, very likely had a, had a close tie to this culture. Um, so he even shared an apology letter that she sent him uh, that is rather boring and textbook, but also alongside that, he posted a letter that her friends sent him that had had been sent only a few days before. And it, she was just continuing the charade that she was in the hospital <sighs> with Amber and that it spread and she was going to have to have a major surgery all while at, asking for empathy um, and compassion after this observer article yeah it's just it's just just re just repulsive so there was a full-on manhunt and tipsters were writing in left and right you know hamilton was asking anyone if they'd seen her to write in or if they had any stories or things like that and people were just it was a deluge of content coming in um, and it was in real time and the hipster community was completely outraged. So the day that the observer called out Carrie was probably one of the most exciting times for Hamilton, who wrote the first piece asking for the tips, uh -huh. stories, sightings, and people just delivered. Just when one article was published, literally within the same day, within like the same hour, another was getting published by Hamilton with new stuff that was being divulged. And it turns out that the grifter got into a lot of trouble. So people couldn't get enough of any article featuring their beloved villain. I think that, you know, the reason they kept publishing more and more articles was because it was such a hot topic and like the views were so hot. Like you said, you would, you were just at, on the seat of your pants wanting more information about this. Mm -hmm. So there were a few Gawker order articles that shared descriptions from Carrie's victims and her actions. One article from Gawker titled Carrie's Victims Speak Out shares some juicy experiences. The most detailed tip they got, though, was from a guy who says he knew her back in Utah and that she hasn't changed a bit. So his story goes, and I quote, For starters, Carrie is a bona fide sociopath. She grew up in South Jordan in one of the many stucco middle of the of upper middle class neighborhoods that emerged overnight in the Salt Lake Valley. She was adopted had a younger brother also adopted who lived with their mother in Arizona. I also felt bad for her dad, Terry. He bore much of the brunt of her frequent damage until he finally Pontius piloted her out of his life, refusing to help or do anything else to enable her. Hmm. I knew Carrie when I was 19. One of my favorite Carrie tales goes as follows. She invited me to go to a midnight showing of The Shining at an art house theater down the street from me. She had told me that she lived downtown, but for some odd reason, she needed me to pick her up in South Jordan, 20 miles away in the heart of mouth-breathing Mormondom. Not a problem, I thought. 
I met her in a parking lot and drove back. On the way, she told me, A, she was a veterinary assistant. (laughs) B, while a veterinary assistant, she was the victim of racial prejudice. And C, this racial prejudice resulted in her dog being killed by a coworker. Oh, my God. He's like, oh, what? This was a pretty typical sort of chain lie that Carrie would tell. But she would show that Carrie lied about everything, not just select things. I digress. We went to a movie. It was packed, crowded even. The lights went down and almost instantly, her clammy hand made her way for the Croatian coast. (gasps) Yes, right there in the middle of a crowded theater. I had hardly known her a week and was sitting in a crowded theater theater so i wasn't having it i pushed her hand away we sat in silence the rest of the movie and drove home largely in silence when i finally dropped her off she made an attempt to kiss shudder anyway it was amusing for a minute but i got old real quick when she staged a fake trip to the hospital complete with a maudlin bathos ridden text i had had enough and cut her off completely nevertheless every couple of months i would get unsolicited statements like I joined the Peace Corps and now I'm off to Mozambique or I'm having a book of poems published. Ha fucking ha. In addition to the text, Carrie would invade different circles of friends, triggering their sympathies through a chain of predictable, I'll bet unmanaged lies while tempting them with her cool fictionalized connections or professions. Mm -hmm. The scam always worked. And obviously something that she recreated in Brooklyn um, for a while. Anyway, I'm amazed at how many people I met around the city um, in the 1827 range that have been duped by her. The worst, however, was last summer when Carrie had infiltrated a group of friends against my advice and common fucking sense. She dated one friend, Brandon, but he dumped her when she wound up in jail for drum roll check fraud. After after Brandon threw her curbside, she made a move for Brian, who requited. During the time, she still maintained that she worked for Ticketmaster, so now this is Ticketmaster, and totally had connections to national touring acts. Um, the Coupe de Grasse came in July when she told all of them, against mine and everyone else's advice, that she could get them backstage all-access passes at the to the festival and even arrange to meet Sonic Youth after they played Dre Dream Nation in its entirety. Wow. They all bought pricey tickets and even gave her some money on the side. The day before they are scheduled to leave, Carrie outright disappears, emerging a week later with some lie about a stolen phone or hospital visit. Brian continued to date her because, you know, masochism totally rocks, and even posted bail the last and final time she was busted before leaving for Brooklyn to work that totally non-fake Ticketmaster job. She broke parole, missed court dates, and Brian had to eat the entire hat six thousand dollars price tag and all <gasps> oh yes he basically says good luck finding that blood tick so <laughs> i mean it just like this person is just like an artist when it comes to mm-hmm. life scamming, yeah. scamming friends too hamilton explores the insane and popular reception to this story in his article carrie farrell sellabullies and craigslist hookups He writes, and I quote, it turns out there is no news in New York City currently that does not relate to hipster grifter Carrie Farrell. Semi-celebrities and prospective hookups are sending us her ridiculous lies. We're programmed to care. May we indulge a little in amateur psychology. 
there are three reasons people have instantly become such voracious consumers of Carrie Farrell news. One, she's just like you and your friends or someone you know, all as young, cool, urban cools relate. Number two, but you know, she was totally seriously psycho. Come on, the frauds and ripoffs are, or the fake cancer, the fake pregnancies, or all the other assorted lies, the path to normal one at a time, but all in one place. She was the holy grail of the outwardly cool, inwardly crazy, and dangerous person you met at a bar one night. And number three, she had the misfortune to perpetrate her fraud in the midst of the most self-absorbed, writing intensive demographic and zip code in all of America. Absolutely. And I, that's why I think he probably lived around Williamsburg. <laughs> um, and I personally would like to add on part of the hipster community, you know, this community was developed to embrace outsiders and go against the mainstream culture and to build a culture together, embrace a better way of living. And in some cases consuming, this was an affront to the community itself a wolf in sheep's clothing that took on the aesthetics, but took advantage of the close-knit and supportive people that looked out for one another. I also think her foul-mouthedness and raunch culture over-sexualization was fascinating and provocative. It was the ultimate betrayal. We were the, the superior beings, right? This was an embarrassment to our society, and it was just trashy. So everyone aired her dirty laundry and a rash of her lies was unearthed. There were naked photos circulating, merch, okay Cupid accounts of hers with like made up names, her old MySpace page. Everything was being unearthed and it was not pretty. She was being tarred and feathered publicly and rightly. Redemption and Sonnenfreude felt great to the hipsters and the hipster community that was duped. The townspeople with torches were coming for her and using the internet to take her down how was she eventually caught you might ask well she was lying to a guy in philly of course who was in a really cool band and his friends alerted him so he actually collaborated with the police and lured her to philly with the promise of going out west on tour with the band and of course she wanted to escape so when she showed up Basically, they came up and arrest her, and she was booked into custody on May 4th, 2009. Gawker continued to report on the updates of the case, including the fact that she claimed, of course, lied, that she turned herself in and not that she was arrested. Um, and on 5-29, there was a there was an article called It's Hipster Grifter Extradition Day, all but Carrie going home to face charges in Utah. And then the next one is, are your children safe? It's six on six one, all about Carrie arriving in Utah. (laughs) She eventually got nine months in jail. You know, she did a phone call interview with ABC News from jail saying, and I quote, As far as this whole story is concerned, I think that the reason it's been such a big deal is because I'm pretty intelligent and very well-spoken. Pharrell told ABC News in a series of phone interviews from jail, I am charming and funny, clearly the words of delusion. Law and Order even came out with an episode featuring her, and her name has basically been written down in infamy. What is she up to now, Amanda? Mm-hmm. Well, she has been up to some of her same old tricks. Uh, Refinery29 actually reported, I think, in 
I think a couple, about a year ago, like right before the pandemic, um, that she basically was pretending to work for them to get access to, um, to <sighs> New York fashion week, um, shows. So Connie Wang, who, who worked at Renick Refine 29 tweeted out a screenshot of a New York fashion week request written by a woman named Carrie Enzor. Um, but it's her photo stating that she was a fashion writer for the site. She even wrote a fake letter of assignment. Um, she even basically duped Alexander Wang's team. Like everybody actually believed that she worked for Refinery 29 and she was getting passes. Jeez. But all of her, everything claims that she lived in Utah still. So she would have to still come out to New York. I mean, imagine her going out to New York and seeing all the people that she duped. Or, you know, I mean, everybody knows what her face looks like. Everybody knows her tattoo, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, oh my gosh. I, I want to know why we haven't seen a movie about her. Like, what is she doing? You know? I... <laughs> I know she tweeted, she had Twitter in like 2010 and she said, you know, I am writing a book right now, but that was like 11 years ago. So well, she's a liar. She's a pathological liar. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. I'm just like wondering, does she have a different name now? Where does she live? Because when you Google her, it kind of runs out with like at around 2010 and then you have that mm -hmm. refinery 29 thing, but that's it. Yeah. But you know she's out there up to something. She's out there up to something. I mean, I can only imagine. She was, I mean, she was in jail for less than a year. Everybody knows her face. I I'm I have no idea what she could, could possibly be up to or what sort of job she could even get. Yeah, me neither. I know. I wonder. I seriously wonder. And she's she just can't help herself, which makes it seem that she definitely has a mental illness. So maybe she's mm -hmm. getting treated for that. Maybe she is. Maybe she's just like a normal person now. I highly doubt it because a year ago she pretended to work That's for That's true. <laughs> I would love a movie about her. Someone yeah. needs to make that. I think it could be really interesting. Plus, mm -hmm. it would be like nostalgic at this point, you know? That's true. It is. I mean, I, I haven't watched the Law & Order episode, but I think that sounds like a really good one. I remember it very vaguely. Now I want to watch it again. Mm -hmm. Um I remember being like, is this about the hipster grifter? So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, speaking of scammers, I am going to be doing a segment tonight about, or I guess it's, it's tonight right now while we're recording this, but it's actually today for whomever's mm -hmm. listening to this. I'm going to be doing a segment about hipster misogyny, but I want to get it started with a little remembrance of the suicide girls. Now, you know, Kim, that I love a Venn diagram. Uh -huh. So I want you to imagine this one, which is in one circle, we have scammers. Mm -hmm. In the other, we have hipster misogyny. And the overlapping section, in my opinion, is labeled suicide girls. I don't even know what suicide girls are. So this is really fascinating. Okay. Well, for those of you who don't know, the suicide girls was an adult website, meaning, you know, it was like uh -huh. you know, nude photos featuring what I would call alternative models. Uh -huh. um, so like, you know, hipster chicks, right? Tattoos. Found, yeah. Tattoos would be a big part of that. You know, you've, we've already talked on social media about how everyone was dying their hair black at that point. So 
probably dyed black hair as well. And this site was founded in 2001 by a woman named Selena Mooney, who goes by the name Missy Suicide. Mm -hmm. And her partner, well, not like her romantic partner, but her business partner, Sean Sewell, who went by the name Spooky. So it had a female founder. But Mm -hmm. as we talked about back in the Raunch episode, that doesn't inherently mean that Suicide Girls is a feminist website, right? Because as we talked about, women were doing a lot of this very not feminist objectifying and abuse of women in the mainstream culture under the illusion that it was feminist, but we know that it wasn't. So basically this is like the 100% hipster version of that behavior. Wow. According to Mooney, the term suicide girl comes from Chuck Palahniuk's it's the guy who wrote Fight Club. I'm not yes, going to pronounce yes. his name properly. Anyway, he had a 1999 novel called Survivor, which I read. It's very dark, like all of his stuff. He's also a Portland dude. Uh, in that, a character talks about masturbating to the troubles of young girls who look up to him. And it, the exact excerpt is, it's the same with these suicide girls calling me up. Most of them are so young crying with their hair wet down in the rain at a public telephone. They call me to the rescue. Curled in a ball alone in bed for days, they call me Messiah. They call me Savior. They sniff and choke and tell me what I ask for in every little detail. It's so perfect some nights to hear them in the dark. The girls will just trust me. The phone in one hand, I can imagine my other hand is her. So we're just talking about, yeah, this like gross, just, it's just gross, right? Yeah. So like I said, this is a very dark book. All of his, I'm, I'm very embarrassed that I cannot pronounce his last name, but whatever. All of his books are dark, right? I just don't think this is a very positive or feminist way to start a brand. Uh, She also said that the name comes from the idea that the women who choose to pose for Suicide Girls are committing social suicide by disregarding social norms Mm. and expressing their sexuality in such a public way, which, okay, that makes more Mm. sense to me. It does. Yeah. It's still, I always felt really weird about the name because, you know, like suicide is not funny or sexy. So it just, it felt like edgy in a way that like a 16 year old boy would dream up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So This site is the, quote, sorority of badass bombshells and geek goddesses. And the site's press page stated, quote, we consider ourselves the sexiest, smartest, most dangerous collection of outsider women in the world. But to be clear, no matter how alternative or geeky or tattooed these models were, they were still thin, white, young, and traditionally attractive. Mm -hmm. Just the hipster sort of analog of what you would see in Playboy or on Rock of Love, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go too deep into all of this because it would take way too long to discuss it. It could be a whole episode on its own. It has, there's so many other pieces there. But I guess I just wanted to remind everyone of Suicide Girls. And I also want to mention that in most cases in the aughts, models were paid anywhere from $50 to $500 per photo set of about 60 photos. And unless those photos were taken by a Suicide Girls staff photographer, the models had to pay for their own photographer, lighting, set, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and editing. So what does that mean at the end of the day? 
They lost money on it. Meanwhile, the company itself was charging subscription fees that were about $12 a month. They had millions of subscribers. They were also selling t-shirts, DVDs, stickers, you name it. They were putting together tours, all kinds of stuff. Furthermore, in 2006, models found that the company was actually selling off their photo sets to hardcore porn sites. And because the contract was somewhat predatory and that it was basically like, once you submit your photos, they belong to us forever, not to you. We can do whatever we want with them. And that's why I feel like it's pretty scammy and opportunistic, you know? It's no more feminist or progressive than Girls Gone Wild. But it feels empowering. There's this illusion of it being empowering because it's a product of the hipsters. You know what I mean? Uh I mean, what do you think about that? I mean... (sighs) It feels like girls gone wild, right? Like those those girls, they went wild. They signed away the rights to their boobs, basically. Yeah, it just just seems like... Yeah. It's just taking advantage of people who want some sort of fame or... Yeah, uh, attention. Attention. I mean, they want... They probably think they can get money out of this, but clearly they're just being swindled. Yeah. And all their assets are being sold. That's just awful. And, you know, this was... This was sort of the early days of the internet, but we know now in 2021 Mm -hmm. that these things never disappear. You know what I mean? So I feel like there were a lot of really young women and, you know, not to shame what they did because plenty of young women turned that into a career of some sort or did it, had tons of fun, met lots of great people and moved on. But there are definitely women who did it, felt taken advantage of down the road. And now it comes up whenever they don't want it to, you know? So, I mean, I'm not even saying that at the time the people running Suicide Girls knew that the internet would become what it is right now. But the fact that these women were putting all this work into this and getting little to no money for it and making themselves very vulnerable on the website while allowing this company to profit off of them is very upsetting to me. What was the benefit of doing it besides attention. I mean, that it would lead to something, you know, I guess. I mean, it was a weird time to be a young woman and the attention would be enough. You know, initially uh, Suicide Girls in Portland, they moved to LA in 2003, but, you know, I moved to Portland in 2002 and multiple times, I would say maybe like half a dozen times, random dudes would come up to me and give me business cards saying that they either actually worked for suicide girls or shot for them. And they, if I was interested in doing a shoot, you know, I should call them and I'm sure it was a scam in one way or another, but if I had really needed $500, maybe I would have done it. I don't know. I don't know. So it was, it was basically photos, static photos Mm. that people could then access with their, um, uh, their subscription and just Mm -hmm. static photos of suicide girls. Were they naked? Yes, they were naked. They were naked. And they were they were artistic. They were very different in many ways than what you had been seeing. And remember, these were the kind of women that normally wouldn't mm-hmm. be photographed in that way because they had tattoos and piercings and you know dyed hair and whatnot. But they were still traditionally beautiful and thin, you know? And I mean, looking back on it now, it seems so tame because 
video didn't really exist yet, like streaming video. And now you can see like some wild shit on the internet, but it's still, it feels very predatory because it seems like the women got the short end of the stick here, you know, while a company continues to own those photos Mm -hmm. forever. It made me think a lot about this phenomenon of like ironically demeaning women in the aughts. Like this would have, this happened to me a bunch. It was really upsetting to me. Actually, there was a woman who was technically a superior to me at the store I worked at. And she would call me slut what? in meetings in front of, what? in front of groups of people all the time. I know. Once again, this was a woman calling me a slut at work in front of my coworkers and direct reports. And she would sort of act like she was laughing that this was a joke, but I could hear what? the sort of like cruelty and anger that was beneath it. Would she call it didn't, other people slut or just you? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware oh of. My God. And I want to preface this by saying, you have to remember that I was like the lone hipster in Portland that had a kid. So I was already in a really vulnerable position. I was already othered all the time. People would talk about how maybe I'd been a teen mom or, you know, just weird shit like that. There had been rumors going around that I killed Dylan's father. I mean, just all kinds of really ugly stuff because people are terrible no matter how they dress, right? It didn't feel cool or ironic or like we were reclaiming the word slut. No. And I would hear skank and hoe used in the same way by people of all genders and sexual orientations all the time. But it was almost always directed at a woman. Mm -hmm. And it just never sat well with me. But I was like, I guess I'm just uptight. I guess I'm the problem. You know, like, I'm just not cool. Do you remember those T-shirts you could get that said like slut? skank on them i feel like yes, par- yes. you know paris would wear one or whatever yeah imagine that <laughs> imagine wearing that right now today mm-hmm. you would never there's a great 2012 article from the cut called the age of hipster sexism i'm going to cite a few articles here of course as always all the links will be available in the show notes and at our website i have to say there's something incredibly reassuring about finding an article about something that's been bugging you for a long time. Yeah. It's like Googling yeah. your symptoms and then finding out that it's just a sinus infection and not like cancer or COVID. Exactly. It's very, it's a relief, right? <laughs> so the writer Alyssa Court muses, quote, hipster sexism flatters us by letting us feel like we are beyond low-level, obvious humiliation of women. And now we can enjoy snickering mm. at it. She goes on to say, like hipster racism, hipster sexism is a distancing gesture, a belief that simply by applying quotations, uncool, questionable, and even offensive material about women can be alchemically transformed. Once again, it's our old friend irony coming in exactly. to make everything really confusing, uh-huh. right? Uh, and I mean, this is true. Like you could be like, oh, I meant slut as a joke. And then everybody's like, of course she did. Right. Like, you know, but such a mean girls shit, you know, it is, it is another great article about this is called ironic sexism, the male gaze of hipster spaces. It's by Emma Pittman. And she goes off in this article. She cites examples of this like excruciating, ironic sexism all over the place. And, you know, spoiler Just like ironic racism was actually just racism, (laughs) ironic sexism is just sexism, right? Yeah. Surprise, everyone. She says, quote, 
It's even the well-intentioned sarcastic jokes that try to suggest how stupid sexism was, unwittingly leaving little space to talk about how stupid sexism still is. Because despite being so desperate to appear above it, ironic sexism actually has little interest in your experiences within it. It's about its own image, not your reality. It exploits its awareness for attention, not solidarity. Its eyes glaze over if you start to talk about your own experiences, Mm. of which there are probably many. And I think that's the thing about it is it confuses you as a woman in this period into thinking sexism is gone. We've come a long way, baby. This is the new, this is the new century. And we're, we're cool. We're authentic. We're above all that. Like, yeah, that's happening over in like the mainstream culture. And they're all like, you know, going to strip clubs and like, you know, exploiting themselves. We're not over here. We're the real deal. We're so progressive. It's like you know? deflection. And yeah. Yeah. And once again, just like ironic racism is just plain old racism. It's ironic sexism is just mm-hmm. sexism. Like, To say that like, hey, we flipped the switch and now sexism doesn't exist anymore and therefore now we can just joke about it and like adopt all of this sexist language and behavior, but it's funny. That doesn't make, I mean, when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, but you have to understand that that's what we were all thinking. Exactly. So after our first episode about hipsters, I posted a series of stories on Instagram discussing how terrible my self-esteem was in the early aughts. That was such a good post. I think you still have it right on your. Yeah. People asked, people asked me to save it. And that was really hard for me. I mean, I, uh, have always tried to like keep it inside. I don't want to throw it all out there and be judged or whatever. And I think one amazing thing that has come out of the pandemic is that I'm just like, you know, I'm Amanda and this is who I am. And if you, want to be in my life, then you'll listen to this and like me. And if you don't like it or want to hear it, then why does it matter? Right? Like then, you know, we don't need to be friends because I have realized more and more who is important to me in this past year, you know, who's, who's my real like family to me, you know? So I talked pretty frankly about how I've been in a series of just incredibly abusive relationships and additionally had had abusive encounters. And I cannot emphasize enough that this is the first time I have ever spoken to anyone about this other Mm -hmm. than a therapist. So massive. Even my closest friends were like, whoa, I had no idea. This stuff had really traumatized me though, even though I'd never talked about it. And I am still process, I'm still working through it, right? I see how it shaped my entire adult life. And I mentioned to everyone that it had been extremely difficult for me to process it because it was all rooted in that hipster scene around me. It made everything so confusing. You got to remember the conceit of the hipsters is that they are superior to the mainstream culture, that sexism and racism and whatever else don't exist in this culture. So when bad things would happen to me at the hands of other hipsters, specifically male hipsters, but I would even say you know, that female coworker yeah, calling me a slut geez. all the time at work. That sucks Yeah. It was really confusing. I can't decide if I was being gaslighted by the individuals themselves or maybe by the scene that I was a part of, or if it was just me doing the gaslighting because 
you know, the conceit was that we were above it, right? There's no way that stuff happens over there. It doesn't happen here. We're genuine. We're like anti-corporate, you know, we're tearing it all down. I mean, of course, in retrospect, we're like, all we were really doing is like buying a lot of stuff and partying. But at the time, everything we did seemed so much better. And I will say that, like, I was a part of it. Mm -hmm. I felt that. I would look at other people and I'd be like, oh, how do you even live your life like that? You know? Yeah. I mean, it it developed a ton of male narcissism. I mean, oh, God, I know. We're all the odds are like, oh, this is really cool. And then you start to like meet people and you're like, ooh. Ooh, not not so cool. I would basically just I started just hanging out gay bars because I felt much more comfortable around gay men than than straight men. I hear that for sure. <laughs> I'd have so much more fun with gay men. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Or I honestly, I really more and more with each passing year only hung out with women. It just like picked mm-hmm. up momentum over time. But I still always felt that everything that happened was my fault. That if I weren't such a defective person, these things wouldn't have happened to me. Like it was always just blaming myself. If I hadn't drank that much or if I hadn't talked to that guy, if I'd just known better or, you know, whatever, it was always my fault. And I talked about this on Instagram and I even said, you know what, maybe this is just a Portland thing. Like maybe Portland, it's got all that rain. Everyone's really depressed. They're all drinking a lot. Maybe this was just a Portland thing. So I posted all this in stories and then I went to bed. Uh And I woke up, Kim, easily 100 DMs the next morning. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. So many friends and acquaintances from all over the country, all recovering hipsters like ourselves, from different cities. Mm -hmm. Everyone spoke of this similar sort of self-gaslighting, that bad things couldn't have really happened to them because these guys weren't like classic misogynists, right? Maybe they were ironically sexist, but that's not the same as the real deal, right? And, you know, trying to struggle with that. And, you know, Kim and I talked about Dub Charney and Terry Richardson. Saw the episode before last? I can't even keep track anymore. Maybe it was the last episode. And, I don't you know, they're, I don't remember either, right? They're like known abusers of women that somehow got away with it during this period. I cannot underscore that enough that these guys didn't really face any kind of repercussions until we crossed into the Audis, you know? They seemed to maybe get away with it because we thought maybe their creepy vibes were ironic. Although, you know, reading that Jane Magazine article from like, what was that, 2004 or something? I'm like, how was this okay with us? How did we think that this was ironic? Maybe we thought, I was thinking about this a lot, that these guys were just too hip to be that terrible, In hindsight, of course, like I said, it's very obvious, but the irony, but irony was and is confusing for all of us. Furthermore, if these leaders and icons of the hipster culture, like Doug Charney and Terry Richardson, were actually predators and not at all ironic, then wouldn't that mean that every hipster dude could be terrible too? I mean, that goes back to, you know, who are the hipster role models? Who are they? They're Carrie Richardson and, you and know, Tom Charney. I know, I know, exactly. And what I think is interesting about them is they would be role models for men at that point, not because of their great deeds to the world or their great character, but just because they looked cool and did cool stuff. And I think we touched on it in the last episode. I'm definitely going to talk about it in the next episode. The hipster culture was so shallow. 
mm-hmm. but it diluted itself into thinking it was so deep. And intelligent. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like we talked about people engaging in social justice causes just because it gave them some sort of cred. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was shallow. It was about what you wore, who you hung out with, the people you knew, the music you listened to, the shows and parties you went to. We weren't expecting people to have great character because we didn't care. So yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, it's dark, but it's true. It's true. In in a 2014 article by Ellen Margolis, man, I found so many great articles about this. I'm all written by women, of course. This article was called Dove Charney, Terry Richardson, and the Misogynistic Truth About Hipster Cool. And she wrote, quote, Charney and Richardson represent an uncomfortable truth about our current conception of coolness. The two men are emblematic of a hipster veneer that's so often used to cover up the mistreatment of women. In the name of cool, we so often make allowances for men like these. With their 70s porn star aesthetic, seems to calm this notion that they're only subjugating women ironically. We'll carry on buying clothes from people who look like the result of Ron Jeremy humping a copy of Vice. (laughs) I know that one's great, right? Mm -hmm. Misogyny is okay as long as it pastiches a bygone era of kitsch, female subjugation, as long as it's retro. Mm -hmm. These bizarre double standards are only serving to blur the lines between sexism and chicness. And it's true because, you know, what Dove Charney and Terry Richardson were doing in terms of their photography, you know, the marketing around American apparel, just their behavior in general, it was so 70s and it contrasted with the mainstream raunch culture, but they were all the same, Mm -hmm. you know? Basically, the irony aspect of it was kind of muddling the whole thing. And I'm going to talk a lot about irony in our next hipster installment because I feel like I feel like irony kind of ruined everything for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it made it it made it really hard to be honest, to trust what people said to you, to really get a read on anything. You know, it it was it was hard. I think it's still to this day anyone that was a hipster probably still has ironic tendencies that mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that confuse our decision-making skills. I agree. I agree. You know, when I met Dustin, the thing that struck me most about him is that he was just earnest and it wasn't a put on. He liked the things that he liked. One of those things was me. Aww. And I wasn't ever guessing where his true feelings really were, you know? Yeah. That was the first guy I'd met in this entire century so far who was like that. So as I mentioned, the stories that I was hearing from my friends on Instagram really struck me as falling into several different patterns and like archetypes, mm-hmm. almost as if we'd all been dating the same exact <laughs> men. And I can't wait to hear if you've had any experiences with any of these guys, Kim. I'm so looking forward to this. Yes. So without further ado... Please, I want to make sure Mr. Christensen, I hope you stopped listening a long time ago, but please just stop now if you somehow are doing this to yourself. I would like to unveil my latest creation, the Encyclopedia of Hipster Abusers. Oh my God, how glorious. I want someone to illustrate this, you know? I was actually just going to ask, do you have any photos to accompany this for the, the website? No, we've got it. We've got to get someone to do some drawings of this because they're just so ridiculous. So, well, if anyone wants to do any drawings, yes, please, please submit. We them. need some fan art over here. 
So the first one is the woke sexist. And this guy is outwardly just a progressive wet dream. This guy was all over the place in Portland. Side note, he hated hipsters loudly and vocally, but he was in fact, take him out of Portland, Uh drop him off in Iowa. People (laughs) would drive him by pointing at him, hipster. Okay. So Uh he would like attend socialist meetings, eat a strict vegan diet call himself a feminist. You know, I used to fall oh, for that shit ones. all the time. Yeah. Yes. Those ones. And you would believe You would them. believe oh, that. Would yeah. Intellectual oh, power. Totally. Totally. And he would... Uh, and elitism. Oh, feminism. Feminist elitism. Totally. Elitism is such a key component of this. He would occasionally call out other dudes on their bad behavior with women, but only if he already hated that guy because he's in a rival band or something. And uh-huh. I will say, I got one male response to my posts on Instagram. It's my friend Shane, who is really fucking cool dude. And he was like, you really nailed it with the band thing. <laughs> and he was also like, hey, I, I feel the same way. Like, we're still like, why haven't all these dudes that we know are predators in Portland specifically been called to a rec- reckoning? Like, why are they getting invited to people's weddings and stuff still? So these guys are actually, and I mean, I cannot, I cannot overstate this, a fucking nightmare for women. For one, they will do anything possible to remind you that there is no way in hell that you are as woke and political as they are, and probably not as intelligent either. Maybe because you work retail or you dress cute, or one guy said to me he couldn't take me seriously as an intellectual because I was too pretty. Another told Mm -hmm. me that he would never take me seriously because I have pigtails, you know, like Mm -hmm. what? Um, yeah. It's like narcissistic con artist and like insecurity. I mean, it's just, Uh I was involved with two of these guys in the aughts and it was horrible. Like I would say of all the traumatic experiences I had had with dating men, all of that stuff from the early aughts through the oddies, These were the guys who traumatized me the most because once again, you're confused. You're like, this guy's so progressive. He cares so much. He's Mm -hmm. a feminist. How could he be doing bad things to me? Right. I must be the problem here. One told me every single day, every day that I was ugly, that no one else would ever want me. He would hit me. He would force me to have sex with him. And he told anyone that would listen that I was actually a slut eventually this is going to really take you back. I had to see a lawyer because he was posting really fucked up shit about my best friend and myself on his MySpace journal entries. Do you remember those? He sounds like he actually has like a mental illness. Oh, no, he has a major mental illness. Uh, Yeah. This is the thing. All of his vegan socialist friends, they fucking loved this shit and encouraged it. There was something about women that they loved to tear apart. Totally. Totally. They didn't like women being any, having any sort of intelligence, no, but no. they also wouldn't, they wouldn't be caught dead with a stupid girl. You yeah. Know? Like they just hated your intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Another guy, he was an NPR-aholic and self-proclaimed feminist. He would always tell me he's an egalitarian feminist. He encouraged me to starve myself so he could remain attracted to me and would remind me That he would say things to me like, someday your ass is going to start sagging and you're going to wish you had a better personality. 
He would <gasps> lock me in closets when he was angry with me. He would force me into sex all the time. He installed spyware on my computer. He then printed out the contents of my email inbox and faxed it to both my mother and father to prove what a slut I was to them. Uh, I feel like this is just more mental illness. Dude, I know, I know, I know. He compared me to a pair of irregular pants at Ross Dress for Less. He said, I couldn't afford you before you had a kid, but now you're slightly damaged goods and you're priced to move. Like, I know these, I mean, obviously these relationships were incredibly traumatic. They discouraged me from being too involved in politics for a really long time, which is really unfortunate because I was afraid of the men involved in these movements. And I will say, this might be upsetting to some people, so just bear with me here. This kind of guy transformed in 2016 to the most ardent Bernie bros. You know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. The guy Mm -hmm. that would say blatantly misogynist things about Hillary Clinton on Facebook while flaming anyone who dared to admit they were voting for her. These are the guys who would say they would rather see Trump win so they could, quote, watch it all burn than see Hillary Clinton as president. What they're really saying is racism, sexism, and total incompetence is superior to a woman running the show. I mean, the level of insecurity is really at the core of all this. And I know, based on the stuff that these dudes posted on social media before I deleted them all, that many of them opted to vote for Trump just Mm. to prove a point. Like I said, I've deleted them all, but it has made me really apprehensive about getting too involved in any political action group unless that organization is clearly led by women and femmes because I just I can't be around this. I don't trust these guys. Rightly so. I definitely think you have a history to <laughs> distrust this. I mean, there were a lot of these guys in Portland. I told a story about the one guy, how he got mad because I didn't want to have sex with him. So he started throwing well, he hit me and did a bunch of bad stuff, but then he started throwing all my stuff out in the street, including my brand new sewing oh. machine that my mom had just gotten me. And this was in a time where I was so broke that like every possession was like so important to me. And I was out in the street in my bathrobe, picking up the pieces of my sewing machine. My face is bloody. I'm crying. A woman pulls up in her car and I think she's going to maybe call the police or get me some help. And then she says, you left your diet Coke on top of that car. And I just sat down on the sidewalk and just laughed and laughed like a hyena. I just was like, this is my life right now, you know? And yeah, like, Women aren't even supporting women at that point. No, no. I mean, if I saw something like that going on, I'd be like, oh my God, what can I do for you? Get in this car right now so I can whisk you away to safety. But these are all things that I have like not spoken out loud ever. And it it feels crazy. And like, there's this part of me that's like, don't be a bummer. Don't bum people out. But then I'm like, you all need to hear these stories because I know you have them too. And I want you to know that it's okay. Well, we didn't have Instagram to call people out, no, you know? No, call-out culture did not exist in the way it does now. Mm-hmm. And I would see that starting to happen around 2015, 2016, where people would, like, make a Tumblr account where they would literally just post testimonials of abuse that they had, you know, experienced at the hands of someone. But it would specifically, like, that Tumblr would be specifically focused on one individual. And I would almost feel jealous. I would be like, Why, where was this for us, you know? exactly i mean i i i feel like also there was like there was just obviously the role model thing was really 
was really um, non-helpful. No. But, but there was just like a crass. There was a crassness that was super acceptable and really trendy where if you, you dated someone that, you know, that um, maybe had like a more like blue collar aesthetic and like and taste, which also sometimes just led to lots of abuse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, totally. Totally. But, I, but, but, but they were all like hyper educated. It just didn't, it, it didn't make a lot of sense. It goes back on this idea of like, oh, there's like classic sexism. That's bad. Then there's ironic sexism, and that's okay because it's just ironic. And you're like, I don't. Where's the line between it being real and ironic? You know what? There isn't one because it's all real. You know, like you just you wouldn't talk to someone that way whether you thought because yeah. you wouldn't think it was funny if you didn't believe but that stuff. You know, where was the moral code and ethics, and what were people being taught when they were children? I mean, during I, this time. That period. is so interesting that you bring that up, Kim, because so many people said that to me. Where did all of the parents of our generation go wrong? We could say on the wimp for all of us who grew up, you know, who were girls, right? That it's not like our parents ever sat us down and were like, listen, we're going to talk to you some about some different situations that you might encounter that might be scary or that you shouldn't follow through with whatever. I mean, no one had that talk with me. And maybe that's because our parents didn't know the world we were going to be living in as adults, but we definitely never talked about consent or like emotional abuse, you know, and for the guys, I mean, I, Kim, I, I just don't know. I'm going to tell you, I have a few more of these archetypes and they all have mm-hmm. a really common thread, which I can see now is that these guys are so insecure <laughs> yeah. and they will do anything to maintain control. You know, I mean, I wonder, wonder what they went through in like middle school and high school, because, you know, obviously as outsiders, because usually these, these guys kind of came from that alternative scene, how much insecurity came from that experience of growing up amongst, you know, jocks and the jocks in the mainstream culture. And then also, you know, probably a lot of like latchkey kids. You hit the nail on the head there. And I remember my friend Grace turning to me at one point around 2012 or something and gesturing to the table full of guys that we were hanging out with, who were all of the guys who would have been made fun of in school, right? Because they were like, mm-hmm. they were smart, they were glasses, they were into like making movies and music. You know, they were those guys. She was like, who would have thought those guys would get to grow up and be womanizers? How's that fair to the rest <laughs> of us? And I was like, yeah. you just blew my mind, but you're right. Uh-huh. That these guys in any other scenario, if these guys had chosen to embrace and live in the mainstream culture, they would just be like some nerdy dudes who were alone all the time, but they were in this hipster culture where they had all this power. You mean incels? Yes, they were. Yeah, exactly. They would have been incels, but fortunately there was this community ready to embrace them. Right. And I feel like that's, that's what happened. You know, they have the right clothes and interests. And so Rather than being like incels or whatever, they were like <laughs> the leaders and tastemakers of this community. And they they didn't have the like, I don't know, emotional intelligence to do that the right way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, which is a great segue into the next archetype is Mr. Nice Guy. Interesting. Okay. I think this guy is the most insidious and confusing. This is the one who offers to walk you home because it's late. This is the wolf. Yes, totally. Then he tries to put the move on you when you get to your place or it's Mm -hmm. too late for him now to walk home. So, you know, you're, you're a decent person, right? 
you offer to let him crash on your couch. You feel that by saying, hey, you can crash on the couch, you are being very clear that they Mm -hmm. are not to come into the bedroom with you, right? That this is Mm -hmm. a friend zone situation. You wake up two hours later and he's in bed with you, either touching you in your sleep or actively engaging in intercourse with your unconscious body. I mean, this is like, this one got the most responses from people actually. Or maybe you crashed on his couch. Once again, you're saying, hey, I'm staying on the couch. You know why? Because we're friends, right? And we're not, we're not going to hook up here. If we were going to hook up, I would go to bed with you, right? And he's a nice guy. He says you should crash on the couch. He wants you to, you know, to not be out there and dangerous and alone, right? You wake up a few hours later to him groping you. This is another really common yeah. one. I definitely have experienced this because usually they're actually friends of yours. And, and like you've known them for a while and they've done this. I know, Kim. That And you're like, what is, you're like, I trust you. What is happening? Like, I've known you for years. Why are you doing this? Oh my God. I know. I know. This, I think is one of the most, the major reasons that I slowly shifted away from having male friends because I was just like, I I can't go through this again. You know, like I thought we were friends, right? Yeah. And it's like, Kim, I can stay over at your house. I could even sleep in your same bed. Nothing's going to happen, right? Because we're friends. Right? (laughs) Like, come on. So when you would reject this guy or tell him to stop or blow him off after that because you felt so dirty and traumatized by what happened, he would tell anyone who listens that you rejected him because you're a cold bitch or an incurable slut, whatever. I've been called both. And last week I was telling Kim a story about this guy I knew who was a brother of a friend of ours. Now, the friend is a beloved guy. I still love this guy. His brother was different. He had a very different energy. And from moment one, I just wasn't sure how I felt about this guy. He was just weird. Like he always had this weird energy and he was obsessed with hanging out with my female group of friends. And I didn't think much of it because, you know, we're all super rad and smart. Why wouldn't you want to hang out with us? I assumed he just really appreciated us in a way that all these other jerks out there didn't. One night I was at his house and I remember we were going to go, we were having a drink there and then we were going to go meet a bunch of friends at another place. Like I had biked there and we were going to bike to the next place and meet a whole group of people. And I started to feel really, really sick, like dizzy and weak. Uh Like I thought I had a fever, but maybe I just felt like I had a fever. He told me to go lay down in his bed. And when I woke up a few hours later, he was in bed with me and we were both naked. Sex was happening. But calling it sex almost implies that there was some fun involved and not me just being fully unconscious. And I staggered out of bed and threw my clothes on, walked my bike several miles home, just too dazed and disoriented to really think very much of what had happened. But I didn't want to hang out with that guy Mm -mm. ever again. And he proceeded to tear me apart to anyone who would listen. He would call my other female friends just to talk about what a terrible person I had been and how we'd had this glorious evening of passion that I was just rejecting him. And I was like playing games with him and people believed it, you know? And I was so ashamed by what happened that I just was like, yeah, I don't say, I guess I just am incapable of love. Yeah. You know, I found out years later that he had done the same thing to at least three of my friends in that circle of women. And 
none of us had ever talked about it because we all shame. felt really confused Just by shame. it and ashamed. So sad. And when I told Kim this story, Kim was like, I think he drugged you. And that had not occurred to me until now. You yeah. know, I think he did too. You know, once again, this guy was like always hanging out with us, always so sensitive mm-hmm. and talking to us about all of his problems. And we would sympathize with him, right. you know, you trust him. Just he, we he trust him that. as our mm-hmm. friend, you know, Emma Pittman, who I cited earlier, she called this guy, quote, the soft boy, an underdog with a hurricane salt who might not weaponize his sensitivity, but definitely leverages it to maintain control. If the fuckboy is an unrepentant asshole, these guys are somewhat repentant, though not enough to change their behavior. They wear women down by requiring a frankly invoiceable amount of emotional labor with limited reciprocity or commitment, fostering insecurity and remaining inhospitable to being called out for anything. And... That's the thing with this dude. I think eventually he had to like move out mm. of town. I also just want to add that he worked in a daycare center with children, which made him even more of like, oh, yeah. you work with kids? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like, <sighs> you know, I think your experiences are just so insane and intense. And, you know, in New York, there you didn't really get close to a lot of people because the culture was really about like, like there was no dating in New York. You didn't date mm-hmm. any of the there Not only were they, you know, unacceptable, but they were constantly just out to, to just party and and get laid. And like they, they never wanted to 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 cultivate a relationship with anyone. I was single for like I don't know seven years in New York, which was, you know, absolutely insane. Like like a long time, <laughs> yeah, really long. I'm a catch. I mean, come on. Yeah, you totally are. I mean, I think that just speaks to the yes. culture there. I mean, Portland was like, you know, it had a different vibe, obviously. Like, we're all walking and riding our mm-hmm. bikes everywhere. There's a lot more nature. We're just outside. Your friend groups overlap. It's like maybe a little bit closer knit. In New York, it was just so big. Yeah. Like, it, you know, yeah. It, there were friend groups and they did kind of overlap, but it wasn't this same amount of of overlap and people like really knowing each other that happened i mean that happened in madison i recognize like that sort of community was a lot stronger in the smaller smaller communities Mm -hmm. that makes sense in the small yeah in the smaller cities and like in portland you could go to the tube the bar i talked about before and you would know everyone there and there was also at that time it was like every week a hundred new people moved to town or something and so you were constantly increasing the size of your friend group and if anyone just left town for a few days to go on vacation. You'd have to have a going away party oh, for yeah. them. I mean, it was it was very tightly knit, but it was also really abusive and messed up, you know? The thing is, like, I thought until I posted this stuff on Instagram, Kim, I was like, I'm the problem right. because these bad things the keep happening to me. And then I have friends messaging me and being like, this happened to me like 25 times. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, so it was happening to all of us. It wasn't just me. So the next guy is the sad clown. And I have to say, the sad clown is my Achilles heel because I'm a funny person. I love nothing more than to sit and just make inside jokes and random schemes and all of that with someone for just hours. Like, I love a funny guy or a funny gal. I love funny people. 
So this guy, he's like hilarious, but he's tortured. Mm -hmm. He's a sad clown, but he's also the life of the party, but he's also self-loathing. And probably he's wasted all the time. This is the guy who's probably sober now. You know what I mean? But back then he wasn't. He might still be wasted now, but now he is like in a really bad place if he is. This guy wants to hang out, definitely wants to have sex with you as much as possible, but might pretend that he doesn't know you in public half the time, then show up at your house two hours later. You'll listen to his problems nonstop. You'll be helping him do his laundry and try to get his life together, make him food. And then he'll try to push you into weird sex stuff that he saw (laughs) in a porno. But you'll forget it all because he's so much fun. I think in the oddies, we started referring to this kind of guy as a fuck boy. Like when I think about a fuck boy, I think about the sad clown. This guy might also Mm -hmm. be a musician or an artist and therefore believe that his creativity is a license to just be a hot mess and an asshole and, you know, have all kinds of untreated mental illness. I feel like this might be... This this might have come through in Brooklyn as, you know, with all the uh, musicians out there. For sure. For sure. I actually had a policy after a certain point that I would no longer date anyone in a band. I was like, I just can't take it anymore. Yeah. I'm tired of... Yeah, that's my policy. I, yeah, like, no you're more. always broke. I have to go to all your fucking shows and yeah. stand there all yeah. night. You are shitty to me you know i just i just don't need it anymore and when i met dustin and he was like a musician i was like you're in the friend zone forever so (laughs) (laughs) so but he but he also was more had other qualities like (laughs) yeah there you go i was like fine um also he's just like it's i know that it's like interesting that dustin is like the hippest hipster and knows all of the dudes in all the bands of this era and later and will casually just tell you stories about hanging out with the breeders or sonic youth or something but the most genuine person that i've ever met that came out of that scene like it was like we we were kindred spirits in that way i think it's funny that i actually met him back in like 2000 and i don't know 2002 2003 in Madison, Wisconsin, like way before you guys. I know. How bizarre is that? When he was on tour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's pretty wild. And he's, I just get the vibe based on how many people just love him all over this world that he has always been a pretty lovely guy. Really great. Really well mannered. Really sweet. Loves you so much. You know, that's. That's a real treasure. That you don't, is. You don't find that in the hipster world very much. No, you don't. And so, you know, on paper, he looks like he would be the last guy I'd want to be involved with. So yeah. imagine my surprise. And I was skeptical for a long time. And Neil, who I'm dating now, he was a hipster in Indiana uh, <laughs> and then in Silver Lake. But he grew up with really amazing parental role models. Mm-hmm. That helps. That I mean, I think that's what's missing here because I will tell you for some of these guys that I've talked about that I had run-ins with, I do not know anything about their families. Some of them I do. And I will tell you their families were fucked up. There was really, the stories they would tell me were shocking to me. And you have to remember that my childhood was no walk in the park. I was just like, oh, that seems like that would really mess you up forever when your mom invites you and your whole family over to your neighbor's house to announce that she is leaving your dad for the neighbor. And you turn to your dad and say, well, who are you going to be married to? And he says, no one. 
I mean, like, these are like the kinds of stories I would hear. Yeah. And I would be like, all right. I think you're right. I get it. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> I, think right. I feel like the 80s and 90s were ripe with just dysfunction, like insane amounts of dysfunction. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's when like divorce really picked up some steam. It, it, absolutely. Divorce was, that was really big. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most people that I know now, all their like their their parents are divorced, and um, I, I it was always kind of surprising when I would be be like, oh no, I came from a pretty normal upbringing, like a really you know really great parents. They're still together. Everyone's I would be the odd person out, and I feel like I still am. Um, and I, you know that might have even come through with like that emo and alternative culture where people were, you know, they were dealing with a lot of. Um, family issues and, and and emotional issues and they were turning towards music and in com- this community to help um to help support their them during these t- these trying times and that and maybe that was kind of one of the, one of the triggers of all of this yeah i think i think so and i think you know when we talk about how like in places like portland and other smaller cities the community was so entangled and so closely mm-hmm. knit I do think that that was often people creating family for themselves because their families hadn't worked out. And I, I mean, for me, it totally was. I looked at my friends. I mean, I still do as my family, but I do think that we're probably one of the first generations of people who look at our friends that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the next guy, this guy and I never get along. We don't, we don't go on very many dates. So I'm just going to say that, but I know of this guy and I've had friends who've dated him. Mr. Edgier and more cultured than thou. It's like an, a, a yield. Odds are high that if this is the early odds, this guy is also a yield. Okay. This guy is always the worst first date after you've experienced his ilk one time too many. Like you already are like this fucking dude. How long do I have to sit here with him? His taste is always better than yours when it comes to mm-hmm. music, art, books, film, food, design, whatever his yes. thing is. Probably on the first date, you're going to be quizzed the entire time. He probably talks to his male friends about how he has like, you know, a test he's he gives every prospective date to see if they're good enough for him that involves answering arbitrary questions about albums, food, art, whatever his thing is, right? You will never compare. Everything you like is garbage. You know nothing about true art. You should be grateful to receive his expertise, his criticism, his control. He is the daddy of taste that you never thought you needed. He's like the teacher. He's going to teach you. These guys often, I will say. So insulting. You often encounter these guys when you're younger because mm-hmm. he'll be like 8, 10, 12 years older than you. And he needs that feeling of teaching you, right? Mm-hmm. He's rarely going to be the same age That's as daddy. you. Yeah, he needs that daddy thing. Yeah. He's never going to be the same age as you. And he will remind you every day that he knows what's best for you. Maybe if you're lucky, he'll even belittle your taste in front of his friends. They'll all laugh. Nice. You'll feel small. And you will never pick the restaurant, the show, the bar the vacation you go on, anything. Mm -hmm. He might even decide he should start controlling how you dress and cut your hair too, you know? (laughs) This is all about power and control. And 
I think this might be kind of what it would have been like to date Ryan Adams in the aughts. Um, he, he would always tell Mandy Moore, who I would say at this point is very successful and possibly worth mm-hmm. more money than he is in 2021. He would say, quote, you're not a real musician because you can't play an instrument and just uh, wow. abuse her in all kinds of ways. And I don't know if you knew a lot of guys who liked Ryan Adams in this era, Kim, but not really. I feel like, yeah, I think Ryan Adams was too commercial. The few guys I knew who would like Ryan Adams as a guilty pleasure of some sort yes. were the biggest assholes. <laughs> I when I I was always like, I always had a bad feeling about Ryan Adams just because of that. And then when it came out that he sucks, I was like, yeah, all adds up for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like, yes, that's definitely a red flag if you see a Ryan Adams uh, CD. Yeah, yeah. Ron, well, especially now. I'd be like, what the hell? Or it's on a on a mixtape. Oh, Remember, they would always make yes, a mixtape. And they would put that on it for sure. Yes. Uh, there are some other miscellaneous hipster abusers that I've encountered or people suggested to me. Uh, I'll fix your bike in exchange for a blowjob. This is the guy, and maybe this is just a Portland invention, but I know people hipsters biked in other cities who was always there to help you with your bike, but there were strings attached. Uh, please be my mommy by supporting me and caring for me. And in exchange, I'll fuck with your self-esteem by cheating on you constantly. This guy, man, Mm -hmm. this guy was flying high in the aughts because he was hooking up with everyone while some woman was at home paying his rent, buying Mm -hmm. his food, doing his laundry, whatever he needed. And I had, so many friends in this situation, Kim. So many. Me too. So many. The only reason I didn't find myself in that situation is because I already had a kid. So it wasn't as appealing for these dudes, you know? Oh, yeah. It scared them yes, away. Yes. That's cool. But so yeah, many yeah. of my friends, Kim. So most of my closest female friends were in a situation like this. And these situations tend to drag on for years. I don't know how, but I mean, I have friends who were in relationships with guys like this for three, four, five years, mm-hmm. and they were so unhappy. And in Portland, for a guy to be cheating on you like that all the time, everyone in the city knows but you. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, oh, oh so, so sad, so frustrating. Um, there's also this guy who I have fallen prey to multiple times. I'm just a dude on tour who wants to crash in your living room. But I'll get in bed with you after you fall asleep. This guy is really common. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or I'm just going to keep trying things I saw on porn in porn on you, no matter how much you politely say no. I mean, Kim, a guy asked me to spit in his mouth and I just kept thinking that maybe I wasn't hearing him right. Oh my God. (laughs) Did you do it? No. I was like, all of a sudden I had like major cotton mouth. I was like, I. Yeah. Why would I? Oh. Just like sweating. Oh, God. So gross. My friend and I would always be like, hashtag that's porn. Because when, yes. when dudes, when as the odds rolled into the oddies and more and more streaming porn was readily available all the time for all the dudes, things started to get weird. Yeah. I think, yeah, it did. It, I mean, this these things are just horrifying and i love that you're speaking out about this because you know this is definitely a time to heal and i think that probably most hipster girls have experienced many of these things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and haven't even realized that it wasn't their fault and that this was just happening to literally everyone around you and we just we we had a bad a 
a bad pool to pick from. We did. And that is the other thing that so many people said to me. The options were terrible. And mm-hmm. specifically in the hipster culture. And this is because I think it goes back to this idea that a lot of the men who found themselves in the hipster culture, like really in it, had been rejected by mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Maybe when they were teenagers, that pivotal time when it's either yeah. you're a jock and popular or you're like a weird artsy nerd and uncool, right? I just think we already had these really broken guys that gravitated yeah. towards our culture. And, you know, we never talked about what was going on. The reality is that no. no one talked about any of this until Me Too started. And that was well after the fact. And I still think we're barely talking about it. We're barely. I, I think we, ha- we have a whole decade that just is, is no one is talking about. Mm-hmm. And just all of these women that, that just experienced so much abuse constantly. I mean, even at work, you know, I mean... I, I love that this is a conversation that's starting to happen. And I actually would love to hear from some people if they are willing to share. Me too. And it can be anonymous. You can, we can cut mm-hmm. your name out of the message if you want to call or send us an audio file. I mean, I think this doesn't change until we start talking about it. And like, once again, going back to that guy who probably drugged me, if mm-hmm. I had felt empowered to tell my friends there were three more women that that wouldn't have happened to. And the sense of shame, you know, when we Mm -hmm. talk about everybody, like, you know, there's suicide girls and all that raunch culture and stuff. The irony of the whole thing is that we were, we were encouraged to objectify ourselves for men, but we were not encouraged to own our own bodies. Yeah. You know, and dictate consent. Like there was no conversation about that by Mm -hmm. existing you were consenting, you know, and we didn't have talks about these things going on. It, it just, yeah. it just further stigmatized of, it. There's a lot of talks about like depression and mental illness during that time, but there wasn't anything about people that maybe didn't have that or had that. And were just experiencing all of this trauma yeah. that was maybe causing it. Yeah. You know, like, there was just no conversations about this. And, and I'm going to talk about this more in the next episode, because I think the hipster obsession with irony basically squandered an amazing opportunity for us to change the culture back then. But instead we were like, we're just going to adopt all the existing bad stuff out there and do it, but pretend it's ironic. And so what happened is nothing changed at all through the aughts, through the oddies, until Me Too happened and until, mm-hmm. you know, our finally we started reckoning with racism last year. I mean, we're so far behind. We're like 20 years behind here, yeah. you know, because we're so, we're so far, far behind. behind. And it was just because everything was ironic and it created this illusion that like sexism and racism and everything else was a thing of the past. But in fact, it was alive and well. Imagine trying to have a conversation with your friends in 2005 about the abuse happening around us, you right. you would be never invited to anything ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah. You'd be, you'd be a bummer. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be a call out person. Yeah. I think you definitely would have been um, castrated from, from society. Yeah, you would be, you would be. And I think it just set us up to just be, 
it's like sometimes I feel like I you you, you take out all of our clothes and you know, descriptions of what you we were mm-hmm. doing, and you're like, are you talking about the '50s over there? Like, what's going on? Right. And that that is the reality. I mean, you know, we imagine transitioning through that period and then like going to work at some nasty girl boss empire mm-hmm. after that. Like, no wonder so many people are a mess right now. Yeah. Just one thing after Just another. one thing we, yeah, after we're, another. We're reckoning. It's sort of like a reckoning right now. And that's kind of what a good thing that's coming out of the pandemic is we're actually having that time to explore that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because I would say, like, I've been mostly talking about the aughts here, but, like, I saw this kind of stuff carrying through the oddies. I just wasn't as involved in it because I was like, I just can't live through this more, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah. you know, I still dated some terrible dudes for sure, but not to the level of the aughts for, I mean, like at all, like I definitely was very wary of almost everyone at that point. And, you know, once again, until recently, I thought it was all my fault that I was the problem that maybe I drank too much or maybe I dressed too slutty. I I don't know. Maybe I hung out with the wrong people. Maybe I was too sensitive and uptight, whatever. I think it's really important for all of us to be sharing our stories and speaking loudly about it. Yeah. I, I If people want to write in, I can put it on the website as like yeah. um, its own page, people's detailed accounts or whatever. If, if anyone just feels like they want to share or just want to expose it a little bit, I mean, we're happy to... Also, any quote ironic racism that you experienced too, because I don't think we talk about that enough either. And these things are all connected. All of it, exactly. Even the nerd elitism. The nerd elitism is basically half these guys you just described. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And I, I have to tell you that uh, because I spent a big chunk of my time single, and yes, even though I had Dylan, I was able to use a lot of my like free time, whatever that was, to focus on really developing interests and things that I liked, whether that was Mm -hmm. music, reading, whatever. And dudes didn't like that, that I already had my own list of interests, you know? And it put me in a weird position where in order to feel safe around these guys, I had to prove how tough I was all the time, even though I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, we're going to both ride our bike to this show. I have to be two blocks ahead of you. I have to be the fastest, strongest bike peddler around, you know? Yes. I have to act like I don't care about every, anything. I have to prove to you that I am tough. And you know what? I probably started that day by getting up at 5 a.m. to get myself dressed, feed my kid breakfast, take her on my bike to daycare, then ride my bike across town to work another eight hours slinging fake hipster clothes, only to turn around, (laughs) ride back, get her, go to the grocery store, Mm -hmm. go home, get a babysitter, all that stuff. And I'm trying to prove that I'm tough to you. I clearly am so tough. And you probably only worked your part-time job today and were hungover, you know? You worked at the coffee shop and you sneered at customers. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I mean, I, I'm at the time I was, you know, pretty lonely because that's just a culture that, you know, you could feel really lonely. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't dating anyone for that big chunk of time. Cause I have a feeling I wouldn't have been able to aspire to where I am today. Like, I think they, like that is the culture where they kind of keep you down. Um, oh my God, Kim, I, 
cannot agree enough. I saw this happen to so many women. Like I said, all of my friends in the early aughts were so smart and so talented. And many of them just got stuck. And I would think about that. I had this one relationship that I was really devastated when we broke up. Uh, he actually broke up with me for a much younger girl who worked at Powell's. Like she was, awesome. I'm not even sure if she was old enough to go to a bar. And uh, I was a typical, like, you know, ye old, I'm trying to be your daddy situation. Uh, I was so devastated at the time. I look back at that all the time as actually being the true turning point in my life because a few months later, I got offered that job as a buyer for Urban Outfitters and I moved away and I had a career. If I were still with him, I, yeah. you know, I don't even know what I'd be doing right now. So yeah. I, I'm, I feel lucky in a really weird way, despite everything that I've yeah. been through, that I had the freedom to go follow my dreams. Exactly. And not have someone latch on <sighs> and destroy your self-confidence yes. and swindle you out of all the money oh you have to my pay god dude seriously uh yeah uh well i hope this wasn't too depressing of an episode for everyone <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> i thought i thought it was really amazing and exploratory particularly as we went through it and had revelations i loved it and i think like you know i think talking about hipster misogyny is so perfect when paired with the hipster uh, grifter because she was like cut from the same cloth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the same stew of, of irony that we were also <laughs> swimming in is what created her, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. She was like birthed from the fires of hipster irony. Yes. And much as a guy could ironically be a sexual predator, but in fact be a sexual predator, Wearing a feminist t-shirt. Oh. I mean, wearing a t-shirt that says feminist on it. You know, th- and saying that he's a feminist, it's like, just because you like women doesn't make you a feminist. You know, it's funny that you would bring that up because uh, a couple years ago, a guy from Portland got arrested and he is in prison now, as far as I know. And he was tried for 11 different sexual assaults that had happened through the aughts and the oddies. And he was like mayor of the hipster dudes. He uh-huh. was like a videographer. Wow. I want to say he worked with the Shins, you know, Modest Mouse, all the bands around town. And there's still many, many investigations against him pending. When this hit Facebook, I was living, I think I was living in LA when this happened. Maybe, maybe we had moved back to Portland. I don't know. But the interesting thing about it is that I saw women that I know from all over the country posting about this guy. And they all had a story about him. The irony of the whole thing, because this is about hipsters, we've got to have some irony, is that one of the photos that was always a part of these newspaper articles was him at the Women's March in a feminist tee with his (laughs) wife and his small daughter. Oh, This guy had been sexually assaulting women for the better part of 20 years in Portland and I guess around the world. It's a sexual predator hidden under the guise of coolness. <sighs> yeah. I mean, that is like, that guy Constant. sums it all up. You know, everyone had a story. People would be like, oh, he beat up my female roommate. Oh, he sexually assaulted me. Oh, he tried to drug me. You know, everyone had a story. And oh. he was, here he was at the feminist march, just the women's march, yeah. you know, just, 
a tale as old as time. Uh, you know, I'm glad we're ending with an ironic story. A con, a con artist. Yes, yes. A grifter, a sexual grifter. Yeah, well, I would say that these predators, these ironic mm-hmm. misogynists, are the biggest grifters of all because yeah. the irony, take the irony out of there. They are misogynists, period. Yes. Stop trying to grift us. We know. Conning, conning women, just conning, conning tons conning of really yeah. cool women. Absolutely. So please send us your stories because we, we want to know, you know, I, I, there is something very strange about human nature. When you hear that other people who you think are cool have experienced these things, it helps you heal. Mm-hmm. So please tell us what you, you're not alone. You're not alone. We, we have all the stories. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we got more. We like they 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 they've definitely been flooding in. Yeah, yeah, so. totally, totally. I can't wait to hear from all of you. And next week, uh, we're going to be talking about more scammers. And I'm going to go hard about how irony ruined everything. <laughs> I can't <laughs> can't wait. wait. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.